we open the sacred scriptures to the Old Testament prophet of Micah. Micah chapter 5. We'll read the whole chapter and verse 2 will be the text we focus on. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And he shall stand And feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man shall be the peace. When the Assyrian shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian, when he cometh into our land, when he treadeth within our borders. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people, as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass, that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people, as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots, and I will cut off the cities of thy land, and throw down all thy strongholds. And I will cut off witchcrafts out of thine hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. Thy graven images also will I cut off, and thy standing images out of the midst of thee, and thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. And I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee, so will I destroy thy cities. And I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. Thus far we end our reading, or we read in the scriptures. Verse 2 is our text. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, Though thou be little among the thousands of of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Beloved in the Lord, this Sunday begins what traditionally has been called the the season of Advent. Period of time in which the church may, if she wishes, in her liberty in Christ, commemorate with special attention the Advent, that is, the coming, the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And there is something especially joyful about that commemoration. It is not without good reason that this time of year 
is special to us, not because there's anything more holy about a certain time of the year, but because the things of the gospel upon which we give earnest and focused reflection lift the heart and rejoice the soul. The coming of Christ, the light of the world, into the darkness to bring light, salvation, and life to his people who sat in darkness. So for the Sundays leading up to Christmas, I'm going to preach on a few passages from the scripture that have an Advent theme or can be applied in that direction to focus our attention on the wonder of grace that is the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming in the flesh for our salvation. And tonight we look at an ancient prophecy of the advent of Jesus Christ. An ancient prophecy found in one of the minor prophets, the prophet Micah. Just a few details about Micah. Micah prophesied both to the northern kingdom Israel and to the southern kingdom of Judah. He prophesied at the same time as the more well-known prophet Isaiah was ministering to the people of the southern kingdom. So Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. Micah prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. So you recall from Bible history that that period was a period of gathering darkness. Ahaz was one of the most wicked kings that Judah ever had. And by the grace of God, his son Hezekiah was a godly king who brought reformation to Judah But the trajectory of Judah's history was heading downwards. During this time, the Assyrians, that mighty and vicious nation, was in its ascendancy. It was coming to power and was beginning to vex the nation of Judah. Further, in the future, the power of Babylon would arise and eventually take the people of Judah in captivity. Babylon would be that rod of chastening that God would use upon the impenitent nation of Judah. It's a a period of, of gathering darkness, a period of unrest, a period when sin and impenitent sin did abound in the nation of Judah. And thus Micah, as well as most of the other minor prophets, bring words, strong words of judgment, but embedded in those words of judgment are beautiful gems of gospel hope, promise. And we're going to focus on one of those beautiful gems of hope and promise, Micah 5 verse 2, which is a prophecy of that long looked for and promised king, the ruler, savior, the Messiah, the anointed one. Micah 2 verse 5 is without dispute a messianic prophecy. In fact, it was recognized to be such among the Jews. Remember in Matthew chapter 2 when Herod was inquiring about the birthplace of the promised Messiah and he gathered the religious leaders of the Jews to him in Jerusalem. Without hesitation, they pointed to this passage and quoted it to Herod and said, the promised Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Everyone recognized that Micah 5 verse 2 was a prophecy of the coming Messiah and a unique prophecy at that. There are many, many prophecies and promises throughout the Old Testament scripture of the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Messiah. But something unique that we find in Micah 5 verse 2 is that here we have the very birthplace of the promised Savior set forth. That's unique. Micah 5 verse 2, centuries before the birth of Jesus, foretells that he will be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. That's the unique feature about this prophecy, but that unique feature has much more meaning to it than simply locating where the Messiah would be born. In revealing the birthplace of the Messiah, Micah 5 verse 2 tells us who the Messiah will be. And that's especially the significance of this text and what we want to dwell upon tonight. This passage shows us Christ, shows us who He is is and what he came to do. And that's the reason 
for our joy and peace. Who Christ is. Micah 5 verse 2 gives us a vision of Christ. Let us see Him tonight. See Him through the lens of this ancient prophecy. Our theme is the everlasting ruler from Bethlehem Ephrata. We're first going to look at his lowly birthplace. That's the unique detail that this prophecy reveals. And so that's where we start. His lowly birthplace. Then secondly, we will look at his goings forth from of old. And then finally, his shepherd rulership. The one true God who inspired the prophet Micah and gave him these words to speak gave him a glimpse down the corridors of seven centuries. Seven centuries from Micah's own day to that time which the Bible calls the fullness of time. That is, the appointed time, appointed in God's eternal decree, the most significant time in human history up until the end of history, when the Christ comes again. Down the corridors of time, seven centuries to the fullness of time when the promised Messiah, Savior, the hope of the ages would be born and would come forth into this benighted world. Micah here in the text does not speak his own words but is only a mouthpiece. These words here are the very words of God put upon the page. God says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel. Bethlehem Ephrata. Bethlehem was just a town. A town in the territory of the tribe of Judah. A town five miles south of another town that far overshadowed it. Jerusalem, the city of the great king. Bethlehem was just an agricultural community. A town of farmers and shepherds. The land surrounding Bethlehem was a fertile land. Think back to the book of Ruth when we went through that book. When Ruth and Naomi arrive near the time of harvest to Bethlehem, and the sprawling fields around the town are gold with grain, with wheat and with barley. There are many fields around the town of Bethlehem. And that's Possibly how it got its name. Bethlehem in Hebrew simply means house of bread. It was a fertile land. An agricultural community where many crops were grown. Bethlehem, Ephrata. That word Ephrata refers to the, the region in which Bethlehem was situated. It was an ancient name for the area where Bethlehem was located. And Ephrata is Hebrew for fruitful. House of bread. Fruitful. Bethlehem Ephrata, that use of the term Ephrata helps distinguish this Bethlehem from another Bethlehem. There was another town by the name of Bethlehem far to the north in the tribal lands of Zebulun. You can read of this Bethlehem in Joshua 19 verse 15. It's one of the cities that was allotted to the tribe of Zebulun. And it's mentioned there. And it's a much larger city. You would say even more significant than the Bethlehem we know so much about. Bethlehem was an ancient town as well. First appearance of Bethlehem Ephrata is in Genesis 35 verse 19 where we are told that Jacob buried his wife Rachel. She was buried, that verse says, in the way to Ephrata, which is Bethlehem. The book of Ruth shows how David's 
family had its roots in this town of Bethlehem. The book of Ruth, you remember, traces the ancestral line of King David back a few generations to Ruth and Boaz, whose son was Obed, whose son was Jesse, the father of David. Jesse, in 1 Samuel 17, verse 12, is called the Ephrathite of Bethlehem. So Bethlehem was this small town. Agricultural community, a place of shepherds. That's what David did. He cared for his father's sheep in the countryside around Bethlehem. And what we read in Luke 2 was something so very ordinary and everyday for the people of Bethlehem. That there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now to us, from our standpoint in covenant history, Bethlehem is a town that is well known to us because of the works of God that have unfolded there. But from the standpoint of Micah and the Old Testament saints, Bethlehem was far from a town being well known. It wasn't anything special in the Old Testament. Even after David became king of Israel, he didn't make Bethlehem into his capital. He didn't make Bethlehem into anything special. David kicked the Jebusites out of Jerusalem and made Jerusalem his capital city. And it's there that he ruled as king. And it was there that the royal throne was put in place. And it is there that David's successors ruled all the way to the day of the last Davidic king, Zedekiah, who was defeated by the Babylonians. The Bible has all kinds of impressive things to say about Jerusalem. So much so that Jerusalem is, is a picture and type of the church. The Bible calls Jerusalem the city of God, the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth, the city of the great king. Psalm 87 verse 5 says this of Jerusalem. And of Zion it shall be said, this or that man was born in her. There was something impressive, something special about being born in Jerusalem. Surely, then, that's where everyone would expect the promised king to be born. Surely, that's where everyone would expect the fulfillment of the Davidic line, the great son of David, to be born in David's royal city, the city of the great king. And that brings out then what is so striking about this prophecy, the unique detail of this prophecy, that it is contrary to what everyone would expect. God's plan is contrary to what everyone would expect. Not Jerusalem. Not Jerusalem. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, out of thee shall he come forth to me, that is to be ruler in Israel. What the text sets before us here is the humble, the lowly birthplace of the promised Messiah. The coming Christ is not to be born in a city of highest renown such as Jerusalem, but in lowly Bethlehem. The son of the highest shall have a lowly birthplace. And that's where the significance of his birthplace comes out. The significance of Micah 5 verse 2 is not that it is a, a GPS coordinate for the birthplace of the Messiah, so to speak. But the significance is that the character of his birthplace is expressive of the character of the one who is born there. Bethlehem Ephrata tells us something about the Savior whom God appointed to be born in Bethlehem Ephrata. Thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Little. Surely little in a physical and earthly sense. A small town. Bethlehem Ephrata was a small town. So much so that while Joshua 19 verse 15 mentions Bethlehem of Zebulun. When you read in Joshua 15 
The list of all of the major cities that are allotted to the tribe of Judah after the conquest of Canaan. Bethlehem doesn't even show up on the list. It's passed over without mention. So small. You think back to the book of Ruth and you see the smallness of this town. And that when Naomi comes back from her sojourn in Moab. The whole city city is stirred up by the news of Naomi's return. It was a small community where everyone knew each other. Little, little Bethlehem. But the physical or earthly littleness is not the main point of the text here. Bethlehem was little in status. Bethlehem was little in the eyes of men. What was impressive about this little community of farmers and shepherds with their, with their fields and flocks? Nothing. Bethlehem didn't have a bad name like Nazareth had a bad name. Bethlehem had no name. It was a place of insignificance. No importance. Nothing impressive by human standards. Yes, David was born there. But the Old Testament scriptures don't indicate that that led there to being any sort of special significance attached to Bethlehem in the eyes of the Old Testament people. Little, little among the thousands, tiniest, smallest, most insignificant. And that's what draws out the striking contrast here. Yet, yet. Out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel. From nameless Bethlehem shall come forth the promised one, the one whose name is above every name, the one at whose name every knee shall bow. From nameless Bethlehem Ephrata. That's amazing. From this Little village of farms and flocks shall come forth the king, the appointed one, the one who would be anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows, the last and greatest and the fulfillment of the Davidic line, Christ the king. There he shall come forth. And this coming forth then that the text speaks about is his birth. That's the idea of coming forth. It clearly refers to the Messiah's birth. Not some mysterious appearance there, but his birth. And and that's clear from the the following verse. You read on into verse 3 of Micah 5. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. That's the coming forth that verse 2 is talking about. Here in verse 3, we have a prophecy of the birth of Christ from the virgin mother, Mary. The text is talking about a birth, a birth in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Now you think again about the fact that Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah, and you see the overlap in the prophecies that God gave both Isaiah and Micah to bring to the people of Judah. It's in Isaiah that we read of the promise that a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. That same wonder of grace is what is being spoken about here. And Isaiah emphasizes the wonder of his conception and birth, the miracle of the the virgin conception and birth, and Micah here is emphasizing His birth in lowly, nameless Bethlehem, Ephrata. A place of no significance. Showing us who this Messiah King will be. What a vision of Christ, our Savior and King, we see through the lens of this ancient prophecy. The truth that it stresses to us in the opening lines of the verse is that our Savior will be a lowly Savior like His lowly birthplace. He is born to be lowly and humble. 
And this comes out in especially two ways. His humanity. And then the humility that characterizes his life. And those two are intertwined and related. His humanity and his humility. What we're going to see as we go through Micah 5 verse 2 is that the entire doctrine of the incarnation. The the cardinal truth of the Christian faith about who Jesus is. As God the Son, fully God yet fully man. All of that truth, that beautiful doctrine is not the the construct of the New Testament church, but is truth that comes out already here in the Old Testament. It's here and taught here 700 years before the advent of Jesus Christ. The very real humanity of of the Messiah comes out here. He comes forth. He comes forth like you and I came forth. He is to be born. Through travail. To a mother. At a certain place. In time. At a certain time. He will be. A man of flesh and blood like you and me. Whose flesh and blood came from the mother who bore him. The advent of Christ is we see here, deeply rooted in in time and history. It's the culmination of God's work throughout time and history to bring forth the promised Savior who is one of us. One of us. A real man with a real human lineage. And a lineage that is in fulfillment Of God's ancient promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. Where God promised that he would raise up a king from David's own line. Who would be seated upon the throne and whose kingdom would have no end. And Micah 5 verse 2 here connects Jesus to that Davidic lineage. Connecting him even to David's own birthplace. But verse 3 especially emphasizes the, the most important connection. David, or rather Jesus, would really be the son of David according to the flesh. And that he would inherit the royal blood of David through his mother Mary, who was of the line of David. One of us. An ancient prophecy teaching the real humanity of the Savior. He comes. He comes in humanity. Becoming man. And in humanity. He comes in humility. The humility of his birthplace. Is a sign of the humility. Of his person. The humility of his work. He humbled himself. To be born nowhere. You might say. Without the royal honor and splendor that one would expect Christ the King to be born with. He is born in a place largely unnoticed, even rejected. Without wealth, without earthly power. He was born to be a king, but a king unlike any other king. As Isaiah says in chapter 53. He had no form or comeliness that we should desire him. Man did not esteem him. He was nothing impressive on the outside. And how the history of Jesus' ministry bears that out. How the people time and time again were disappointed with him because... He didn't turn out to be the king they wanted him to be. Yes, there was initial excitement. Excitement about his miracles. Excitement about his feeding the 5,000. But when it turned out he wasn't going to be the great king who comes in splendor to give bread and wealth to all and to overthrow Caesar and to set up a glorious, splendid kingdom in Jerusalem. They wanted nothing more to do with him. He was such a disappointment to them. Not the king they wanted. Though... So many in the Old Testament understood the fact that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They didn't want the character 
of Bethlehem Ephratah. And by nature, we don't either. And this text presses upon us. This is, this is the Savior that we have. And what a wonder it is. Not a Savior who is like the kings of men. Not a Savior who is after the desires of our flesh. Something far, far, far better. A king who came clothed in humility to bring salvation to his people by humbling himself to the uttermost in our humanity. And that's, there's the beautiful connection of these two ideas. Jesus Humanity is the ultimate expression of his humility. As we'll see in a moment in the second point, Jesus, according to his person, is the Son of God. He is God. And yet he comes forth. He is born of the Virgin Mary. He takes to himself our human nature. As Philippians 2 said, he made himself of no reputation. And here's the prophecy of that. Being born in a city of no reputation. Philippians 2, the basic idea of that, making himself of no reputation, means he emptied himself. It was an act of self-humiliation. That God the Son, the possessor of all glory, the one worthy of eternal praise, should lay aside that glory, should lay aside the, the privileges and the honors of heaven, To be clothed in our humanity. To take upon himself the dust of human flesh. That's what our humanity is. We are of the dust. To be made man. The humility of Christ comes out most in the humanity of Christ. Came forth. Born of the virgin. In Bethlehem, Ephrata. And his humiliation in our humanity is our salvation. He humbled himself, not only in that he took upon himself our humanity, but he humbled himself to the uttermost that in our humanity, in our flesh, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He took our flesh so that He might take our sins which we have committed in the flesh. He became man so that as man He could pay for the sins of man. He came to be our sin-bearing, suffering Savior. And through His humiliation, He brings our exaltation. He goes to the dust. To lift us up from the dust. He has made a curse. For us. To take away the curse. So that though dust we are. And to dust we shall return. That dust. Shall return to life. He goes to the grave. To break its bars asunder. And open that grave. Make it the portal to heaven. He humbles himself in our humanity. That he might forever be to us Emmanuel. And his humbling of himself to the uttermost. Saves us to the uttermost. That's the wonder of Bethlehem Ephrata. That's above all the significance of his lowly birthplace tells us who he is what he does a humble savior a humble king whose goings forth have been from of old Micah 5 this ancient prophecy reveals more about the coming savior yet out of thee Shall come forth unto me he that is to be ruler in Israel. Whose goings forth have been from of old. 
from everlasting. The Messiah shall come forth out of Bethlehem of Ephrata. There he shall be born. But his coming forth in Bethlehem Ephrata is not his first going forth. And here the text is unfolding another facet of the mystery of the incarnation, the wonder of who Christ our Savior is. He came forth. He was born. But unlike us, whose birth is our first coming forth, His goings forth have been of old, from everlasting. He is born in Bethlehem, and yet His birth is not His beginning. And while his flesh indeed came into being through the wonder of the virgin conception and his flesh came forth into this world through the virgin birth, so much so that we say the man Jesus Christ according to his human nature had a beginning. He was born. He came forth. Yet according to his person, his goings forth have been of old from everlasting. Here, this ancient prophecy sets before us the truth of the divinity and the eternality of the promised Savior. The divinity and the eternality of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Speaks of His goings forth. And the basic idea of that expression, goings forth, is doing something. When you go forth, when you go out, you are being active. You are doing something. You are living. You are carrying out a task. And that's the idea. This promised Messiah, who shall come forth out of Bethlehem, Ephrata, the text is saying, he's been active. He's been at work. He's been doing things. He's been going forth long before he came forth. In Bethlehem, Ephrata. His human nature came forth there. But his person did not originate there. His goings forth have been of old. That's a beautiful expression of old. Going back. And we can trace his goings forth back throughout covenant history. Luke 2 is not the first biblical appearance of the Christ. His goings forth are found in every book of the Bible. Just think about all of those Old Testament appearances of that mysterious angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Now of course God sent angels. Many different angels. Most of The names of those angels we don't know. God sent angels to his people. But throughout the Old Testament there is this mysterious angel of the Lord. The church has understood that reference in the Old Testament scriptures to be a reference to Jesus Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ. Meaning an appearance of Christ before he came in our flesh. A pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you think of the angel of the Lord who stood in the way and stopped the mad prophet Balaam and opened his donkey's mouth to rebuke him. Who was that? The Christ born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, whose goings forth have been of old. Who was the angel of the Lord who met Gideon at the threshing floor? But the Christ. Before he came in our flesh. Who was that mysterious angel of the Lord. Who met the father and the mother of the judge Samson. The one whose goings forth have been from of old. But we can keep going back. We can go back to creation. For his goings forth go all the way back to creation. The opening verses of the Bible record the goings forth of the Christ. The promised Messiah. And God said. 
let there be light. And there was light. And there is the going forth of the Christ. Of whom John 1 says, even before the Word was made flesh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And by Him were all things made, and without Him nothing was made. The going forth forth of the creative Word of God was the going forth of God the Son. The person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is eternal, who is God, the second person of the Trinity. Thus Colossians 1 verse 17 says of Jesus Christ that he is before all things and by him all things consist. But the goings forth of the Son of God go back even farther than the dawn of time. They go back even farther than creation. They go back even farther than Genesis 1 into eternity past. Son of God in our flesh in His high priestly prayer in John 17 verse 5 makes this amazing statement where he prays to his Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory I had with thee before the world was. Jesus had glory with God the Father before the world was. His goings forth are of old. So old that they are from before the foundation of the world. Even from everlasting as the text says. From eternity. The person. The person of this savior king who will come forth in Bethlehem. His goings forth are of old. Older than time itself. From everlasting. From everlasting. And so this this text, this Old Testament prophecy leads us right into some of the deepest mysteries of the Trinity. The Son's goings forth have been from everlasting. It goes ultimately back to the, the Trinitarian life of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living together in love for one another. The eternal goings forth. Of the Godhead. That's who. That's who. This ruler is. Who will be born. Who has been born. In little Bethlehem. Ephrata. And that makes the contrast all the more amazing, does it not? This is who He is. He is divine. He is eternal. His goings forth have been from of old, even everlasting. And yet this God the Son condescends so low that He will take upon Himself our humanity and be born in humble Bethlehem Ephrata and humble Himself even to the death of the cross for His people. Comprehend that and you think that over and you understand why the Bible teaches that the work of Christ culminating in His death on the cross is the supreme demonstration of love, of grace, of mercy. This God would come forth in flesh in lowly Bethlehem, Ephrata. Worship the Lord. Does this ancient prophecy and its vision of the Lord Jesus Christ bring us to our knees in awe, in worship? What a God! What a Savior! What wonders He has wrought! How 
great is His goodness, His grace, His mercy to me. That He would come so low for me. To rescue me. To deliver me. So that God's faithful promise would be kept. And He would be my God. He would dwell with me. And take me to be with Him. In glory. And in His kingdom. Forevermore. That's our Savior. Who came forth in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Finally, the text teaches us that He came forth to be ruler. To be ruler. That's what He came to be. He came to be a ruler. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Is to be. And and that language emphasizes necessity. Inevitability. For he is the one eternally ordained of God the Father to be the king. To be the ruler in Israel. Over Israel is the idea. No, of course, this king, this ruler, this Christ, who we've seen is God in the flesh. As God, he has universal and supreme sovereignty over all created reality. He is the word by whom all things were made. All things belong to him. He is king over all. But the emphasis here in the text is the special kingship. That the coming Christ is to have over Israel. Israel his special people. The spiritual Israel. Made up of all those chosen unto life eternal. Given to Christ to be redeemed by his shed blood. And to be gathered into the one sheepfold of the living God. Both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. As Jesus said in his ministry on earth. That many would come from the east and from the west. From the north and the south. And sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In the kingdom of heaven. He comes to be the ruler. The king. The perfect shepherd. Ruler. There's another element of the significance of his birthplace. Lowly Bethlehem was the birthplace of David the shepherd king. David the greatest king of Israel who was but a faint, faint picture of this king. Who would be the humble yet perfect and almighty shepherd king of his people Israel. That, that comes out in verses 5, rather verses 4 and 5 of Micah 5. Verse 4, he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide. That, that brings to mind, does it not, the, the pastoral imagery of a shepherd. That's the kind of king this king will be who is To come forth out of Bethlehem, Ephrathah. He shall feed his people. He shall stand for them as their protector, their guide. And they shall abide. He is Emmanuel, God with us, through whose work they shall abide. Like sheep. Led through green pastures, made to rest beside the still waters. Verse 5 says, and this man shall be the peace. Now you think of the prophecies of Isaiah in chapter 9. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You think of Colossians 1 and 2 that set before us the wonder of how he will make peace 
by the blood of his cross. He is the peace. The great shepherd king. He's pointing out what his rule will be like and what his rule will bring. He will exercise his rule by extending that rule over the hearts and lives of his people whom he comes to redeem. The great shepherd king comes to redeem his sheep. And he redeems his sheep by taking on their humanity and humbling himself to be the Lamb of God whose blood is shed, whose life is poured out for their redemption to gather them into his flock, into his fold. Having redeemed, he keeps. He preserves by his almighty power. He comforts with his rod and his staff. He brings them through all of the dark valleys this world to the heavenly Canaan. He bestows life, joy, peace beneath his benevolent reign of grace right now. And Jesus, the perfect shepherd king who has come, is coming again. He is working even now to bring to fulfillment that kingdom that this text looks ahead to. That kingdom of perfect joy and of perfect peace. What a savior we have. What a king we have. Let us delight to submit ourselves to his benevolent rule. To live as he commands. To serve him with all our hearts. To follow him as he leads to glory. Let us pray. Thy kingdom come. Come again. Shepherd king of Israel. Bring thy kingdom. Thine is the kingdom. And the power. And the glory. Forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for these ancient words. In some ways, mysterious words because they were written so long ago to a people so different from us in circumstances far removed from us. And yet, embedded in these words is such a wealth of spiritual truth and heartwarming gospel. Apply that word to our heart. Grant that through the word we may have seen and may yet see Christ. Who he is. And the message of his humble birthplace. That he came to be clothed in our humanity. That through his humility we might be saved. That he by his almighty power has delivered us from our sins and from our miseries. That he is establishing his kingdom. He is coming again. May our hearts be lifted with hope to look unto him. This we ask in his name. Amen.